reading from First uh, Peter, the first letter of Peter, chapter 5. To the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder and a witness of Christ's suffering who will also share in the glory to be revealed. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, watching over them, not because you must, but because you are willing as God wants you to be, not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve, not lording over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. In the same way, you who are younger, submit yourselves to your elders. All of you, clothe yourselves with humility towards one another, because God opposes the proud, but shows favour to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him, because he cares for you. Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. And the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered for a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. With the help of Silas, whom I regard as a faithful brother, I have written to you briefly, encouraging you and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you her greetings, and so does my son Mark. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. Um, during the last few weeks, we have indeed been looking at the first letter of Peter. A letter to Christian believers who were scattered and were suffering in the first century. As Carol has just read, Peter wrote this to encourage them in their faith. It is indeed a letter of encouragement, but it's also a letter about relationships. And in the letter we've already considered relationships between slaves and masters, between partners, as well as those within the church. Today, we will look at the final chapter. A few weeks ago, and Peter Francis has just walked in. Uh, Peter uh, mentioned and described this letter as a pastoral letter on steroids. Well, if that's a description of the whole letter, I want to suggest that chapter 5, this final chapter, is a pastoral letter with an overdose of steroids. There is so much in it, uh, and I won't be able to cover everything, but I'll concentrate on a few major themes. And those themes are about relationships. Four themes or topics of relationships. Firstly, we're going to look at the relationships of church leaders with their church. 
or their flock. Secondly, relationships within the church. Thirdly, our relationship with the devil. And finally, our relationship with God. As I said, this chapter can be described as an encouragement of how to live as Christians in challenging times, whether that's in the first century or the 21st century. As we go through the chapter, I hope you will see that this chapter is a combination of the theological and the practical, the doctrinal and the personal. It's all there in relatively few verses. If you have a Bible handy, either on your phone or in hard copy, whether you're in the church or on screen, uh, it may be useful to get that out as we work our way through. So let me get, begin with the opening few verses. To the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder and as a witness of Christ's sufferings, who also will share in the glory to be revealed. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, watching over them, not because you must, but because you are willing, as God wants you to be. Not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve. Not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. Now in these verses, the first thing to note is that Peter actually describes himself as a fellow elder. At the very beginning of the letter, chapter 1, verse 1, Peter had described himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ. But now, talking to the elders, he's saying, no, I'm one of you, an elder, a fellow elder. I'm standing with you, not above you. Together, the elders are shepherds, encouraging Christian brothers and sisters during difficult times. He then goes on to describe three ways in how church leaders should approach their leadership. Firstly, why do it? Not because they must, but because they are willing. That is, they are a willing volunteer in God's service, a shepherd who cares for their sheep. Secondly, what do they do it for? Do they do it for money? No, they don't do it for greedy gain or what they can get out of it, but rather they do it because they are eager to serve God and others. The church leader is a servant. And thirdly, how do they do it? They don't do it lording it over the flock or acting in a domineering or dictatorial fashion, but they live as an example for others. That is, a life worthy of imitation. As one commentator wrote it, it is inevitable that a congregation will take on, at least in part, the personality of their pastor. So, as we continue at St Columns 
in our search for a new vicar, I'm encouraging our incumbency committee to bear in mind these desired traits of a church leader and recognise the need for him or her to indeed be an example for all of us. Whether we like it or not, over time, we will imitate, at least in part, our chief pastor or shepherd. So these verses finish with that encouragement to church leaders that when Jesus Christ returns as the church shepherd, they will indeed receive the crown of glory forever. So they're not doing it for gain in the, on this earth, but looking to the future, they will indeed receive the crown of glory. So that's to the church leaders, the relationship of them to their flock. Now, Peter goes on, the next few verses from halfway through verse 5. All of you, that's all of us, clothe yourselves with humility towards one another because God opposes the proud but shows favour to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Peter encourages all of us to be humble. Now, if you're like me, that can sometimes be a great struggle. It doesn't come naturally. Sometimes we have to work at it. But let me note three things. First, we are to be humble before God. Now, when we compare ourselves to God, his sovereignty, his power, his glory, his mercy, his grace, and so I could go on and on, there's only one feasible reaction. Great humility. He's God and we are who we are. In comparison, we are nothing to God. And yet, in his wisdom, he has given us so much including being his co-workers for the gospel. He trusts us with his work, but he is still God. Now, secondly, Peter uses that term to clothe yourselves with humility. Now, that's an unusual word, and it has the context of putting something on like an apron and tying the knot over the top of you. It's not just a single piece of armour, like a shield, but it covers all of us. It's who we are with humility. And third, Peter encourages us to be humble towards each other. Indeed, earlier in the letter, Peter encouraged us to live in harmony with one another, to be compassionate and humble. As another commentator suggested, Humility is the oil that allows relationships to run smoothly in the church. We are to be humble before each other. You might recall a couple of weeks ago, Stephen described humility as self-forgetfulness in the presence of others. Now, I want to suggest that humility 
is not a standard or even an expected attitude within our society. We don't look for it. Yet it is a common thread throughout the Bible. In 2 Samuel we read, You save the humble, addressing God, but your eyes are on the haughty to bring them low. And in Micah, the well-known verse, He has shown you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? But to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Walk humbly with your God. And in passing, I really like that concept of walking with your God. Humbly, yes, but we are walking with him. But what is humility? How do we describe it? I actually think that's really hard. We can use the words, but what do they mean? And I think it's actually easier to see humility than to describe it. When we see someone who is humble, it clicks. They're not proud, they're not arrogant, they're not lording it over us. And as I prepared for today, I was reminded in John 13 at the Last Supper. Now many of us will know that story well, but let me remind you of a couple of these verses. The evening meal was in progress. Jesus got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with a towel that was wrapped around him. Then Jesus came to Peter, the very Peter who wrote this letter. And Peter said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you do not realise now what I'm doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you will never wash my feet. Now I think Peter's response was understandable because he was Jesus, his Lord, teacher and master, doing an activity that was normally carried out by a slave. Obviously in those days you got your feet pretty dirty in the dusty paths and wearing sandals. So the slave or servant would come and wash your feet. How did Jesus respond to Peter? Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Well then, Lord, Peter said, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Of course, this activity of Jesus was more than just the washing of the feet. It was also symbolic of the cleansing that Jesus was going to do on the cross. But nevertheless, John in his gospel reports the following towards the end of this passage. When Jesus had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Oh, do you understand what I've done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Here is the leader, their teacher, giving them an example to imitate. Now I don't think it would be surprising if Peter remembered this very event and so encourages us to be humble before God 
and before each other. Now, Paul also writes, writes about humility in the Philippians. Jesus made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Jesus is a fantastic example of living humbly. While I've concentrated on humility, I don't want us to forget or lose verse 7. Cast all your anxiety upon him because he cares for you. Our God cares deeply for us. Now this verb of casting, the only thing I can think of casting is when one casts a fishing line, but it's actually even stronger than that. It's such as hurling and our anxieties upon the Lord. It's not a wimpish thing to do. It's strong, it's decisive, because God is merciful and cares for us. As the psalmist writes, cast your cares on the Lord and he will sustain you. He will never let the righteous be shaken. Now this is one of the marks of our Christian faith. Remember the, leaders of, the readers of this letter were suffering and they were scattered. Peter is encouraging them, them to remember that the mighty God cares for them and is equally true for us. Whatever our suffering, whether it's with others, whether it's within our health, within our relationships, wherever we're suffering, God cares for us. Casting our anxieties and concerns upon God is actually part of our relationship with him. It's part of our prayer life as we relate to God. We shouldn't do it wimpishly or forget about doing it. Let's give our concerns over to him. And indeed, remembering that God cares for us is particularly relevant as we consider the next couple of verses where Peter reminds them about Satan or the devil. And he writes, Be alert and sober mind, and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. I think it's really interesting in this day and age to note what Peter is making very clear. The devil is alive and he's active and he's real. He does tempt us. Worse than that, he is like a lion trying to pick off the weak and the doubtful. The concept of devouring here is not something weak. It's actually got the concept of swallowing somebody up it's quite a strong concept, is strong. The devil is a great deceiver and is always trying to undermine our relationship and our standing with God. He is dangerous and we should not engage with him. And so Peter encourages us to be alert and to be sober or mentally calm. We need to be ready to resist 
the devil and to stand firm. The devil's schemes are real and we must not assume they don't exist because they do. It's no accident that in the Lord's Prayer that Jesus encourages us to pray, lead us not into temptation and deliver us from evil. Or indeed, as the NIV, our Bible translates this, deliver us from the evil one. This is a prayer for all of us and for all time while we live on this earth. Now, in contrast to the devil, Peter then goes on in the next couple of verses to remind us of what God has done, is doing and will do for us. From verse 10. And the God of grace, of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. Quite a contrast with the devil. We've so far looked at how church leaders should relate to us, how we should relate to each other, and how we should respond to the devil. In these verses, we look at how God relates to us and what he has done and will continue to do for us. And Peter mentions five actions of God. He called us to be his people and to be with Christ forever. Just think about that. Be with Christ forever. Whatever our suffering, God has called us to be with him in eternity. He's going to and is restoring us. Now the concept of restoration here is a little bit like the mending of a fishing net. After all, Peter was a fisherman. It's about that restoration to make it complete, fix it up, make it perfect. He makes us strong for active service as we follow Jesus to live a life of love, compassion and humility. He supports us. He does not forget us. Rather, he confirms us in our relationship with him. And finally, he establishes us by providing us with a firm foundation so we can indeed resist the devil. When we consider what God has done and continues to do with us, it's not surprising that Peter encourages us to be humble before each other to resist the devil. Hang in there with God. Persevere. Stay with him. Indeed, Peter concludes the letter saying that he has written it to encourage them and to testify to the true grace of God even though they are scattered and suffering. That's the truth, and don't be misled. Now, this letter was countercultural in the first century, the patriarchal world. I think it's equally countercultural in today's world. And as Stephen mentioned last week, the Christian church is now at the margins of our society in Australia. So in this chapter, let's see what we've seen in, as we put it up on the slide. Church leaders need to be shepherds and servants, not domineering. 
each of us is encouraged to be humble, not arrogant or proud. The devil is real and seeking to devour. We must resist him and stand firm. And our God is full of grace and mercy. He cares for us deeply and is restoring us. I want to suggest that this set of four statements, all four of them, would not be accepted by most people in Australia today. Some of our friends, work colleagues, neighbours may accept two or perhaps three of them, but very few would accept all four of these statements. We are different, like our brothers and sisters in Christ in the first century. We must be ready to live differently from those around us. I have not made up these statements. They're in Peter's letter and they're consistent with the teaching of the Bible and of Jesus. Living differently will not always be easy, but God, in his great mercy, has indeed given us new birth and a living hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's trust in him and stand firm. Amen.